With Jesus, if you saw the awesome posters Kim made up there, that's what we're going to talk about this uh, semester. Uh, and here's why: because at the end of the day, Christianity is about a person, not an impersonal religious system, where you kind of plug yourself into this assembly line and just do what you're told. And Christianity is not—it's uh, not a system of redemption. It's about a redeemer. It's about a person in history, what he did, and why it connects to people. 2,000 years removed from his history. And so we're going to look at the person of Jesus, what he did, what he said, what his interactions with people like us were like, relentlessly, 13 weeks in a row. And we kind of get a a 360-degree view of this Jesus as Luke presents him to us. And so that's what we're going to talk about this, uh, this spring. If you're the kind of person who... You're pretty sure your faith on the the good days is like a vapor and on the bad days might not be there. Or if you feel bored with Jesus, you've been in church your whole life and you think, I know, I know this. I know Christianity, I know the gospel. You know, I've hit the bottom of the barrel. Now we'll just grin and bear it for the next 30 or 40 years. If that's you, this is for you too this spring. And if you don't know anything about Jesus and you're kind of here exploring what this thing's all about, this is for you as well. So hopefully that's everyone in the room. Um, But uh, we'll dig in tonight. If you have your bulletin. Take a look at the passage. That's where we're going to start things out. And here's my question for today. I'm going to tell you my question to you before we even start. Here's the question. This is kind of the question of the semester. Will you take a closer look at Jesus this spring? Will you, no matter your past, church person, not a church person, will you look more closely at Jesus this spring through the Gospel of Luke? I'm not taking it for granted you're going to say yes. I'm asking you. Please do. Uh, Maybe tonight we'll encourage you to do that. But that's my question to you. Will you let Jesus adjust your ideas about him and kind of take out some of maybe your ideas about him that don't line up uh, with who he says he is? Um, And so as you think about those questions, um, why don't you stand up and we'll read uh, God's word from this passage and uh, we will jump in. Uh, Here's the three things we're going to look at. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And who did he come for? And uh, there's no outline on your thing because those are kind of all wrapped up in each other. But here's the passage. This is the word of the Lord. Luke 4, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went all throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by everyone. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, kind of in a, in a but, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you'll quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside of Israel, by the way, if you don't know. That's the significance of this. To a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, out of Israel as well, obviously. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we need a lot from you tonight. We have a very tall order um, to be able to see you as I've just been talking about. You have to give us eyes to see you. We can't even see you on our own. You have to touch our eyes. You have to heal our blindness. Because you say in this passage, that's what you do. Would you do it tonight, please? Would you please send your spirit to release us from our captivity? Uh, To release us from the places we've been liberated from, but keep going back in the cage. Uh, Would you come? Would you help us to see you as you are? Heal our deafness and our blindness. And let us love you all the more because of it. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. Here's my question to you as we kind of kick off uh, the next few minutes. Where do your ideas or beliefs about God come from? Where do they come from? All of them. And I'm not necessarily just talking about the stuff like if I said, who is God? And you could give me a really rich theological answer, but... Your, the, your beliefs, your thoughts, your ideas about God, the ones that are attached to your, emotion, your emotions, the ones that either make you angry at him or wondering where he is or wondering what he's up to in your life, those kind of thoughts about God, where do those come from? Uh, do they, is it kind of a piecemeal thing? Do you kind of, it's like a collage, a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from the Bible, a little bit from church back home, a little bit from opinions or whatever else. But where do your thoughts about God come from? And the question's important because of this. There's not a person in the room, myself included, who comes to God as a blank slate, right? We don't come to God as like these empty chalkboards saying, God, write on me. Tell me who you are. We come like every square inch of that board filled up. We already have thoughts about God. Good thoughts, bad thoughts, correct thoughts, incorrect thoughts. But we come filled up. And so the question is, where did those thoughts that have kind of been written on us, etched on us, etched in our gut, in our emotion, in our hearts, where did those come from? Because they came from somewhere, and it really matters where they came from. So I've been reading a book. um, Every now and then I pick this book up when I kind of want a fascinating read. Um, It's called Soul Searching, The uh, Spiritual and Religious Lives of Teenagers in America. And uh, this... Once you hear this quote, maybe you'll go buy it too. It's rather interesting. But this is a book that's analyzing the results of one of the most comprehensive uh, sociological study on adolescents and teenagers in America ever. 
they surveyed tens of thousands of folks. Uh, and this is in 2005, so uh, this is you. <laughs> they did this survey in 05, and they're talking about 13 and 14-year-olds. So this is your friends. Maybe not you, but once you hear this, you're like going to be offended I said that. But... Uh, <laughs> But this is your age people, and so they did tens of thousands of surveys, but then they did 250 sit-down, face-to-face, long-term interviews, like in-depth interviews about, and this wasn't just Christians, this was everybody, random survey. Uh, and so, and then they asked people, you know, questions like, what do you think about God? Where'd your ideas about him come from? Um, how does religion or the lack thereof help you get through life or whatever else? Um, and this is what one of the one of the questions that they asked is uh, where do you where do our beliefs about God come from? And um, the the person that they they asked this question to uh, was a fourteen year old conservative Protestant girl from Idaho, and it said, um, "This is the interview." And uh, I'll at the beginning I'll kind of give you an idea of the interviewee and the and the interviewer, and then I'll I'll drop that off. But but the interview goes like this: Interviewer says, "When you think about God, what image do you have of Him?" Tanya yawning in brackets. Interviewer, what is God like? Um, good, powerful. Okay, anything else? Tall, tall, big. Okay, do you think God is active in people's lives or not? Um, I don't know. You're not sure? Different people have different views of them. Well, what about your view? What do you mean? Well, do you think God is active in your life? In my life? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Uh, would you say you feel close to God or not really? Yeah, I feel close, in the brackets, more yawning. Uh, where do you get your ideas about God? The Bible, my mom, my church, experience. What kind of experience? Uh, he's, he's just done a lot of good stuff in my life. So, like, what are examples of the good stuff that he's done? I don't know. Well, we'd love to hear about it. What are some of the good things God's done in your life? I, I well, I have a house. I have parents, I have the internet, I have a phone, I have cable. That's the end of the interview, I have cable. So, uh, And then there's another, uh, one more one that I, I found interesting, and, and this is a 14-year-old um, Catholic girl from Montana, summarized her religious beliefs in this way. She said, I don't really know, um, pretty much I believe in God and Jesus and all those people, end quote. And recall that the authors are saying, recall, these were not throwaway comments, These weren't intended as flippant, throwaway comments. These were their main answers to the question about their fundamental religious beliefs. It's a serious interview. And this was their serious answer at some level, as best they could, to those questions about, who is God? Where did your ideas about God come from? Um, And and how how are you living with that? And so, look, I don't mean to pick on the girls. There's a ton of interviews with guys in there that... um, you would, you would not believe, but, uh, so I'm sorry that I picked two from girls, but, uh, but anyways, hopefully, you know, you, we can articulate things a little bit better than that. But, um, what that really draws out is that I think our connection point to that might not be that we say God has blessed me because I have cable or I have internet, but our connection point to that is we also have kind of a Mr. Potato Head God. What I mean by that is you ever play the Mr. Potato Head when you're a kid? It's like this brown potato and you stick stuff on it. There's a nose, there's different kind of lips and ears and everything else. And, and from a variety of different places, everybody in this room, we kind of were Velcro and different ideas about God attached to us throughout our lives. And maybe it was a professor in your freshman bio class, or maybe it was a pastor back home 
who, who said something that stuck with you, for better or for worse. Maybe it was your parents, the way they raised you, for better or for worse. That the father image is painful for you. Uh, maybe it's your own thinking. Maybe it's your gut. Maybe it's, you're the kind of person who says, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. And you put your requirements down for what God needs to be like. But no matter who you are, we, that's our connection point with these people who are interviewed, is that we pick up ideas about God. Now, here's the problem. A piecemeal God, a Mr. Potato Head God, doesn't exist. The God who exists is the true and living God, and he's revealed himself. And so if we're in a relationship with a Mr. Potato Head God that in our own, we've made in our own image, we've kind of assembled him to our liking, no wonder God feels distant from us, right? Because he's not there. No wonder he feels AWOL. No wonder sometimes we wonder what he's up to or if he has any plan, any idea with what he's doing with history, with reality, with our lives. Because it's such a vague, fuzzy notion about who God even is because we've kind of assembled him as we go. And yes, there's some true parts on there. If you've been raised in the church, your Mr. Potato Head probably approximates the way the real God is more than others. But still, we have some pieces on there that, are, that we've kind of stuck on, them, on there. Uh, and so the God that we end up having disappointments in and anger towards whatever else, is he even real? Or have we created him? And then we get angry at the God that we've created because he's not performing in the way we wanted. So that's a problem. Now, here's the question. That's always been what human beings have been doing. You've read your history books, right? You've seen the altars in Babylon. You've seen the the pyramids and the Sphinx in Egypt. Man has always been making God in his own image. The question is, does God abandon us and kind of wash his hands of, of human beings and say, well, forget it. They can figure out on their own because I've told them what I'm like. And they don't want to hear about it. And so I'm out of here. Or does he step in and insist on a reintroduction? Insist on showing us who he really is, what he's really like, what he's really up to in our lives. Well, the answer to that is, why else is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, show up on planet Earth if God was not relentlessly committed to reintroducing himself to people who remake him? And because if you want to be saved by the real God, you have to know the real God. And so we're going to get to the passage now. That's exactly what this passage is about. This is Jesus' hometown. These are his people. Y'all just went to home for a month. You know, you never really grow up at home. You're still like little baby. And, uh, and home has baggage for everybody. And it did for Jesus too. And these are his people. This is Nazareth. This is his hometown. And there's an identity clash between who Jesus really was and who they thought he was. Uh, and they're incompatible. And they kind of, obviously it blew up um, because they thought they knew who Jesus was. They thought they'd assembled him correctly and it, it turned out not to be correct. And so he's in Nazareth and they're like, I know who this is. This isn't a teacher. This is the blue collar kid who lived down the street. His dad's dead, but he's, you know kid of that Mary woman or that kid of that Joseph guy who put my table together. It's a derogatory comment. It's a dismissive comment. This is a little carpenter boy. <clears throat> That's who they see when Jesus gets up to read the scroll. But here's how the story unfolds. As was custom, if we were a synagogue in, in first century Palestine, uh, I wouldn't be like the designated teacher. What would happen is we would all gather in here. We would sing some songs. Uh, Emily still would have read the scripture passage. Tyrell still would have prayed. 
But then um, after the scripture was read, someone from the audience, if there's a visiting teacher or something, they would have come up and they would have served the congregation by teaching them from the passage. This uh, passage was from the prophets. And so they say, Jesus says, I'll teach. And they take him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah and they say, here is your scroll. Here's what's a big, really big deal. Jesus has one of the biggest books in the Bible, um, the book of Isaiah, and he can choose anything at all he wants to out of this massive scroll. This thing's probably this big and probably that much paper wound up on it. And so he's over here unwinding that scroll, looking for a very specific place. He wasn't the, I'll preach on this. He knew exactly where he was going, and it's what Emily read earlier. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and part of 2, but he cuts it off halfway. If you have a Bible, you should turn there, because this is really important. If you don't, I'll tell you. Um, But Jesus starts reading, and of all the passages he could have read to introduce himself, right? Because this is, if you know the book, the Gospel of Luke, this is the first time Jesus really talks. This is kind of his introduction of who I am and what I came to do. And of all the verses he could have gone to, he goes to Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, which just so happens to say this. Uh, in, your, in your green paper, it starts in verse 18. The spirit of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me or set me apart to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the prisoners. And recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty um, those who have been oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, here's what's important. If you have your Bible open, what comes right after he says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of his vengeance. So here's something you and I know that not many people in the Old Testament knew. This will make a lot of sense of a lot of passages in the Bible for you. When people in the Old Testament looked down the road of the future, and they had all these prophecies saying, one day God's going to send a rescuer and he's going to set everything right. One day God's going to put Humpty Dumpty back on the wall and the world is going to be the way it should be. One day. but, But they also said, and he will bring justice. He will judge the wicked, those who do not turn to him, and he will rescue the righteous. And they saw that as happening at the same time. God will come, the Messiah will come, the rescuer will come, and he'll save his people, and he'll reject those who are not his people. And they will die in their sin, same day. Jesus is showing us something else. So when they look down, if you imagine the history's like this long board and there's two nails in it, they looked down this board long ways and they saw two nails, but from their vantage point, they looked right next to each other, right? From their vantage point, they look like that. And so they say, day of vengeance and the day of salvation. Jesus comes and he doesn't read that passage. He stops the verse halfway. Preachers get in trouble when they do that. It's called preaching out of context. Jesus, it is his word, so he can do it. He stops it in the middle. And what what happens is instead of this looking like two simultaneous events, he turns the board the other way. And you realize it's more like that. They'd been looking at it from the wrong perspective the whole time. And so when Jesus comes the first time, he comes with salvation. He comes to gather his people. He comes to pronounce favor, grace, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness. And when he comes the second time, 
what Revelation and a lot of the other books of the Bible talk about, then he's coming in judgment. Then the day of salvation will be over. But now, do you know what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Do you know what John 3.17 says? For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world. Second, right? He did not send Jesus to condemn you. He did not send Jesus to judge you. He sent Jesus that through him you might come alive. That's what he sent Jesus the first time for. And, and Peter says later in one of his letters, God isn't slow in keeping his promises. God isn't lazy. It's not like he's not bringing judgment day and when Jesus comes back. It's not like he's lazy at making that happen. He's patient. Why? Because he wants all everywhere to repent and to turn to him. And to find life in Jesus. And so God isn't, God isn't lazy. He is patient. He is waiting that there might be time and space for you to be reintroduced to who he is. And what he has come to do to bring life to you. Make sense? He has carved out space in history so that the rescue could happen. And that's, we're still in that time period Tonight, you are in the age of rescue. You are in the age where you can know beyond the shadow of any doubt, Jesus has come to gather you to himself. Jesus has come not to judge you, but that through him you might be saved. That's the significance of the way Jesus reads this Bible passage. And so he's leaving space for our rescue um, because in the year 2014, guess what? He knows there's going to be people in Corbett Auditorium hearing him reintroduce himself again. And he's carved out tonight to be space for the rescue to happen. And so this brings us back to the big original question, which is this. Where do your thoughts about God or where do your thoughts about Jesus come from? When you imagine a holy God, he's not like us, right? He's not our buddy-buddy. He is holy. When people saw him, they died. The people who see him now are shielding their eyes in heaven and bowing before him in just utterly paralytic worship. They can't move. They're undone. He's so glorious, so beautiful. He's holy. When you imagine that God coming near to you, do you imagine him coming near to crush you and to judge you and to condemn you? The one who has all-seeing eyes? The one who sees what happens in the dark and behind closed doors. The one who knows all things. The one who knows you better than you'll ever know yourself and knows me better than I'll ever hope to know myself. When you see that that God is coming near to you, stooping down, do you imagine in your mind he's coming to crush me? Or do you hear something else? Where do your thoughts about God come from? Does your guilty conscience, does my guilty conscience... Is it informing my views about Jesus more than Jesus is informing my views about Jesus? Is my shame for who I am and what I know I've done and what I know I've not done that I should have done, is that informing my views about God more than God is informing my views about God? Is Jesus over here saying, I have come to rescue, I have come to gather, I've come to save, I've come to make those who are strangers from me my sons and my daughters? Do you hear him saying that over here? But then your gut, your conscience, your guilt, your shame, your past, 
your captivity now is saying a different story. He's not a savior for people like you. He can't get you out of the mess you got into. You're too guilty. You're too shameful. He knows what you did. Is this informing your views about him more than this? The question is, what do you do? Because all of us hear this voice, don't we? All of us have enough of a memory to know we're in trouble on our own. Jesus came to people like that, not blank slates, but people who have this, these two voices going on, and he's going to wrestle with you. And he's going to wrestle back his image from those voices to himself. And it's not that we're not guilty. It's not that we're innocent little doves. It's not that we, all of us have not run as fast as we can from God. It's not that all of us haven't climbed up on his throne and kicked him out. We've done that. But I'm saying in this age, in this time, do we see Jesus as the rescuer that he is? Or do we see him as, right now, as the one who is coming in judgment at the last day to separate his people from his enemies? Which do you see now? I have trouble parsing between those, which is why I desperately need the Bible. Because I have bad vision, and the Bible puts a set of glasses on me to where I can see Jesus as he is again. And as soon as I take the glasses off, it's all blurry. And I'm back to thinking that God hates me instead of that God sent Jesus to salvage me. That's the question for you. Everybody in the room, that's the question before us in this passage. And it leads to this. And I want to quote from another book that you've probably heard of. I have not read this book, but I have read the preface to it. And I think it's beautiful. If you're having trouble believing what I'm telling you, this is from a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. I can't recommend or not recommend it because I haven't read it, but maybe you'll talk to people out here who have read it and could, could tell you whether it's a book that's a, um, that's a good book to read or not. But Brennan Manning says, this is who I wrote my book to. Uh, and this also answers the question who Jesus came for. Did you hear what he said? I've come for the poor, the blind, the prisoners, the stuck people. This is who uh, Brennan Manning, I think, would add, um, would, would kind of, bring that to our own language and say, say that the gospel is for the bedraggled, the beat up, the burnt out. It's for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase of guilt from one hand to another. The gospel is for the wobbly and the weak need and for those who know they don't have it together but are too proud to accept the handout of grace. It's for inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker, to use an expression. It's for poor, weak, sinful men and women, full of hereditary faults and limited talents. It is for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. It's for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It's for smart people who know that they're stupid, It's for honest disciples who admit their scallywags. And he says it's for those who have grown weary and discouraged along the way. Who else needs a savior than those people? Who else needs a rescuer? Who else needs a deliverer? Who else needs God than that kind of person? You know the stories. Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy people. I came for the sick ones. I didn't come for the clean, righteous people. There's no such thing as a clean, righteous person except for God. I came for the unrighteous. The people who actually need a deliverer. The captives who actually need the one person who has a key and can let you out. 
The blind people who need the one person whose healing touch can restore your sight. The deaf people who need hearing. The dead people who need life. That's who needs Jesus. And everybody fits the bill, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. His moment of introduction, or or better yet, reintroduction to people like us, full of other thoughts about him. That's who he says he came from. Ragamuffins. Broken people. Not uh, the kind of people like his townspeople. It's not like they don't need him, and I'm sure some of them repented, and I'm sure Jesus saved some of them. But here's their problem. They are not willing to let go of their preconceived ideas about who this little carpenter boy is. They wouldn't let him grow up. They wouldn't let him tell them who he was. And so Jesus said, not I can't do miracles in your midst, I won't do miracles in your midst. Why would I nourish your faith when there is no faith? You're not hearing. You're not seeing. You see my body. You see my mouth moving. But it's like Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. So he's like, you have to let go. You have to let God adjust and recalibrate and rewrite who he is. And I'm saying this as a pastor. And I'm writing this sermon today. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I am always having to go back to the drawing board and let Jesus tell me who Jesus is. Because give me 12 hours, and I'm off on some weird caricature of who he is. And usually it's not someone I want to move near to. It's usually someone I'm running away from. The question of the semester, will you let Jesus tell you who Jesus is? Or will you let a whole host of other people who have no qualification tell you who he is? Will you let your gut tell you who he is? Or your guilt tell you who he is. He said he came for the guilty. He came for the shameful. He came for the captives. What do I mean by captives? I mean people who are stuck. People who are stuck in issues of food. You just want to be able to enjoy food, but food for you has become a tyrant. It says you can't eat this because you'll look like that, and so throw it up. Or food that says you better count every calorie or else you're going to look like that, and then people are going to look sideways at you. That's a person who's a captive to food not loving the gift of food that God gave. And so Jesus says, I've come to free you. And Jesus says to the prisoners who are sexual prisoners, I've come to free you. You don't have to live your life like a subway rat, always clawing down in the dark, looking at stuff, undressing and and raping people in your mind. You don't have to live like that. That's not life, that's death. I will release you from captivity to that. For people with depression, does he say he won't make you depressed? He never says that. Not this side of heaven. But he says, I will be with you in that. I, the light, will come into that darkness. And though it might be faint, I will be there with you. That's how he releases us from those places of captivity. So here's the question we end on tonight. Have I convinced you that you're like me? That you need Jesus to give you eyes to see Jesus? Have you been persuaded that perhaps... If you've known him for 20 years or known him for two months or not known him at all, are you persuaded that perhaps you desperately need who this person is and what he's done for you? If you are, the question becomes, well, then how do we grow? How do I see him as he is practically? Here's how. And this is not a pitch for RUF. This is just to try to help you understand why we do the things we do because we don't do it haphazardly and we don't do it just to fill up time and have events to do. The reason we have Bible studies and small groups is so that you can look at Jesus with other people 
The reason we do these Tuesday night meetings is so that you can look at Jesus and so that he can speak to you. The reason we meet together for lunch is the reason we play football together, the reason we rock climb together is to be, have each other's backs and to say, I've got you. When you forget, I'll remind you. C.S. Lewis said, a friend is the person who knows the song of your heart. And when you forget the lyrics, he reminds you. Or she reminds you. Um, that is what we are to be to each other. Is people who, when your friend, your brother, your sister, whether they're a stranger right now to you or not, you say, hey, I remember the lyrics to that song. Jesus is not what you think he is in this moment. He is a deliverer. He is faithful. He is strong. And I'll start humming that song for you again so that you remember. That's what our small groups are for. Come learn the lyrics so you can sing them to your friends at NMSU, here and not here. Come on Tuesday nights as we sing these songs every week. I'll end with this. What I just said goes to a religious person and a non-religious person, or a churchy person and a not-churchy person. For the churchy people, we have to be very careful because churchy people is who rejected Jesus and tried to murder him that day. This is like early ministry. This isn't three years later. Uh, The church people, the people who love to be at church whenever the doors are open, they're the ones who drove him to the edge of the cliff. Which begs the question, are you willing to let Jesus readjust your views about Jesus? Or have you clamped down uh, and you're not listening to him anymore? He's boring to you. The Bible's boring to you. If it is, come to him and say, Jesus, the Bible's boring to me. Give me eyes. It's not because the Bible's boring. It's because I'm blind. Jesus, you seem insufficient to me. It's not because you're insufficient. It's because I'm blind as a bat. Give me eyes to see you. That's the question to you. And to to those who don't know Jesus or you don't know what to do with him, uh, the question is, is the same for you. Who's informing your beliefs? How are they authorities on the subject? Will you not let... The God, the man himself, inform your ideas about him? Or will you continue to just be a collage of other people's opinions and gut reactions to him? And so, this is why we do RUF. Because Jesus is not content to leave you and I in the dark, groping around to try to draw a picture of him in our mind, of who he is and what he came to do. He says who he is and what he came to do. And it's the gospel, it's the good news that Jesus came for the kind of people I read about earlier. Uh, And so, this semester, we hope you'll come back. We hope you'll talk about these honest things. Again, RUF is a place, it's a place for weary Christians. It's a place for, that's safe for skeptics. Come, have lunch, talk to us, go to Village Inn. Get in, get into this. Get into it neck deep. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, like I said at the beginning, I have just set a very tall order. It's like blind people saying, we need to see better, we need to see better. But we know that will not happen until you come. And by your Holy Spirit, who has all power and authority, you touch our eyes. And until you touch our dead, cold hearts and warm them uh, by letting us see Jesus, his purity, his power, his love for us. Uh, We will remain just people who talk the talk and come to stuff, but we will be dead and hollow on the inside.